Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and folks, on today's show, we are pleased to have with us and conduct our interview with Robin D. Hansen. How's it going, Ron? Uh, great, Ed. I'm really looking forward to this. I've been reading uh, Robin's book, The Elephant in the Brain, and just absolutely loving it, so... Yes, and I, I read The Age of M's way back when. We're going to talk to him about all that, but let me read a quick bio and get him on here so we can start the conversation. Robin Dale Hansen is Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University and a Research Associate at the Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford, uh, of Oxford University. He is known for his work on idea futures and markets and was involved with the creation of the Foresight Institute's Foresight Exchange and DARPA's Future Map. But perhaps his colleague at George Mason, Brian Kaplan, put it best when he said, when the typical economist tells me about his latest research, my standard reply is, eh, maybe. Then I forget about it. When Robin Hansen tells me about his latest research, my standard reaction is, no way, impossible. And then I think about it for years. Welcome to the, to, to the, the soul of enterprise, Robin Hansen. Thank you for having me. I hope I could live up to that. <laughs> I'm sure you will. So let's let's dive right in. We are immersed in this world of AI and uh, the lots of concerns from either side. What, what, if any, concerns do you have about the emergence of LLMs and AI such as ChatGPT? Well, I'm worried about overregulation. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. <laughs> So, so I don't think that much new is happening in the long run. I mean, we've got a new set of advances, which is great. And we're going to explore those and, and apply them eventually and, and grow the economy based on that. But I think what's happened is that we've been able to suddenly imagine how far this could go. So usually we're in a fog about the future and what it could be. And we're focused on the short run and we, you know, we see the next new thing, we grab it. And sometimes the clouds break and we see across the valley to the other side and the other mountains on the other side, and we can see how where it might go in the long run. And that's usually a problem for technology because wherever it goes in the long run usually isn't a pleasant vision for most people. That is, most people, if, they, if you could really see how much change is coming in the long run, they're, they're a bit put off. <laughs> they like the short-term changes. They don't so much like the long-term ones. So that's our AI moment. We are, for the moment, giving people a glimpse of where this might go in the long run because the new language mo models are quite impressive relative to the usual standards we use to decide who counts in our society. That is, we use college and, you know, being articulate is a big measure of who counts. And this thing can write college essays <laughs> and can pass college tests. And, gee, that's, you know, in our world. And makes us look like it's challenging us. Now, it it actually can't do most jobs in the world. It's not close to doing that. But for a moment, we see where it might go and we're scared. And one of the things that, that, that I think people have really, uh, and I'm going to try to say this correctly, anthropomortize this thing. Like they'll say stuff like, it lies. And I keep saying, no, it doesn't lie. It doesn't know it's lying. <laughs> 
<laughs> but people really have that they've they've personalized it in such a way. I think that's one of the reasons why there's been such a visceral reaction to it. Well, you could imagine it like a person or at least substituting for a person, and that's enough to be scared. I mean, you don't actually have to believe it's conscious or it's that much like you. You can just sort of imagine it would fit in your slot. <laughs> could be you instead of you. <laughs> that's more concerning for most. Gotcha. Is there any, just to get back to the regulation, is there any, and I'm going to put this in scare quotes, uh, sensible regulation that you think would support, or is the best course of action just competing AIs and let let the market like compete AI against AI, so to speak? So the worry that AI would talk and thereby, you know, change people's minds about things, I don't think is the sort of thing we should be regulating that much. Uh, people get to talk and mislead people, and AI should get to do that too. Uh, so we, I think we should regulate AIs the way we regulate people, in the sense that if we have rules about copyright or or you know, lying or whatever, then then the same rules should apply to AIs. But I don't think we should be adding a lot of extra rules for AIs in particular. Uh, for many centuries, the biggest fear people have had about advanced automation was losing their jobs. So I actually think we don't need regulation for that, but we need a, a lack of regulation. So what we need is to take away the regulatory barriers to what I would call robots took most jobs insurance. So it's possible within the next few decades or a century, there will be a relatively short period, five or 10 years, during which time most people lose their jobs, where the labor force participation rate goes from say over 60% to less than 20%. That's a thing that could happen. It would happen because this technology became very powerful and capable and the world was getting really rich really fast. But the people who lose their jobs might be in trouble if they haven't set up some sort of arrangement for what to do in that sort of situation. So it would be relatively straightforward to create a financial asset that was a, you know, based on a pool of global assets and then split it according to it pays off if a certain event happens, i.e. most people lose their jobs. And then the way to insure yourself against this risk is to buy that asset. And long before it happens, and when the chance is low, the premiums are low, and it wouldn't cost that much to buy robots took most jobs insurance. and be the sort of thing that uh, you might just want families to buy, companies to buy, even nations to buy for their people. And that would deal with that problem, basically. And otherwise, we aren't dealing with it. And many people think, well, what will happen is government will solve the problem. That is, if, if suddenly robots take most jobs, why governments will step in and tax all the robots and give the money to people so they don't starve. The problem is, whatever this new economy shows up and wherever it is, it won't necessarily be equally distributed around the world. <laughs> It may well be very concentrated in some places. So your tax, your plan to tax your local citizens to pay to, you know, help the local citizens who lost their jobs doesn't necessarily work if you don't have the local robots in your place. They're somewhere else. So well, you, you need insurance. I, I really love that idea. And I'm, I, I hope that there's some insurance companies that are, that are thinking through that. Perhaps you could start one. That might be, you know. The, the, well, there's a regulatory barrier, unfortunately. Ah, which is this sort of insurance doesn't really require underwriting. So it's much cheaper in principle. You don't have to look at your personal risk. We just need a market in this overall chance of this event. But standardly, derivatives like this are not allowed to be sold to everybody. 
This mm. is a you know derivative of a financial asset. It's basically a bet, and we don't generally allow bets like this. So, so allow this, please, <laughs> and then we can buy them. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't realize that there was a regula- regulatory barrier against it. But you know, and and I, look, I would almost be willing to not take the insurance because I, I, I my mind is this is the luddites and looms. This 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 is sure. we have come up with ways of serving people. Right. You'd be so. the one selling the insurance. That's yeah. the key idea. Is, <laughs> so we take this general asset. We split it into the two parts. One one part pays off if this event happens, and the other part pays off the event doesn't happen. We need people to buy that other part of the asset to make the whole system work. The people who buy the second asset are selling the insurance. The people who are buying the first asset are buying it. <laughs> Sounds like you want to sell. Sounds which is good. We need sellers. Yeah. 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 No, I, I really, I, I think that was a, a that's a t- terrific idea. Um, I'm going to jump back to your role as college professor. We, I almost went down this, this path earlier, but uh, delayed. So you talk about how the, it can answer college essays and has passed even Brian Kaplan's test and even did better on Steve Landsberg's latest exam that he gave it. So um, the, the whole, the first time it, Steve gave it to him, it was like, it got a four out of a hundred. Um, but what what are you what are your thoughts as a college professor? What do you, are, are, do you uh, incur, are you encouraging the use in the classroom? Um, are you going to pass out a lot of blue books to get have people write right in front of you so you, so they they can't use Chat GPT hand in their phones? What what's a college professor to do? Well, in the classroom, if you're doing an in class exam, then yes, you can just make them write by hand and close the computer. <laughs> Uh, but of course, if you want other assignments, like assigning papers that they spend some time thinking about, then that doesn't work for that. So my solution there is to ask weird questions. <laughs> so this is exactly where people like me's inclination to go weird pays off. <laughs> other people have been asking standard essay questions all these years and getting very standard answers back. And they have to worry about students looking up standard questions and finding standard essays to standard questions. I've always thought, ask weird questions. <laughs> the weirder of your question, the harder it's going to be for them to look it up somewhere and find a previously essay on that. And that works for the large language models too. Uh, I just check. Like I ask a weird question. I check with the language models. I see that they don't get it. And then I'm ready. I give it to the students. <laughs> you know, I can check too. If, if they can have the machine answer the question, I can do it. As long as I check and see the machine doesn't do a very good job at the question, then I'm good to go. <laughs> have you ha- have you asked ChatGDP to generate a weird question for you to see what it comes up with? That might be <laughs> not very good at that, I'm afraid. But well, I've got enough weird questions. I don't I don't need more. <laughs> I'm full well, what- after a career of thinking of weird things. I'm full of weird questions. So I want to ask, because one of the, the things that, that we talk a lot about actually on this show is question asking, and, and we, we've done some shows on it. We had uh, Warren Berger, who's the author of A More Beautiful Question, which is a fantastic book on question generation. He calls himself a questionologist. Um, what, is there a process you have for generating weird questions, or is it pure creativity out of the mind of Robin D. Hansen? If I had a different discipline, I might have to come up with a different way. But for my particular discipline of economics, uh, the, the key thing is that we live in a particular world with particular institutions and particular practices. But our social science theory is more general than the world we're in. Our social science theory applies to other hypothetical worlds that we are not in. In particular, it lets us imagine, let's change something and ask, what would be the consequence of that change? And in particular, it lets us ask, could we change things usefully. So 
by now I've collected many, many ideas of other people and myself for how we can make the world better through alternative economic institutions, institutions we don't actually have at the moment, but on paper at least look like good ideas. Those are all worth questions. Ask people, why should we do this? Or what would be the pluses and advantages of this? So I'm plenty already motivated with all these ways the world could be different. So this is one of the fun parts of social science is we can imagine alternative social worlds, not the world you're in, but other ones that make sense. Absolutely fascinating. Well, we're up against our first break. Want to remind our listeners that they can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We like to remind you always to rate this podcast, and you can do that by going to, ready for this, ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE. We love to have the, your reviews, and we do read all of them on the air. Good, bad, indifferent. Love to hear from you. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with George Mason University Professor Robin Hansen. And Robin, you're also the co-author, along with Kevin Simler, of The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. I mean, I've got through part one. I'm ready to dive in now to part two. But you start out by distinguishing the elephant in the room from the elephant in the brain. And here on TSO, we, we love to talk about the elephant in the room that nobody else does. But can you give us the distinction between the elephant in the room and the elephant in the brain? Well, the elephant in the room is a phrase that refers to something that we all know is there, but no one to talk about. So we talk about something else and ignore the elephant in the room. The elephant in your brain is the part of your brain that you don't want to talk about, but you also kind of know is there. 
And that's the fact that you are motivated in ways you don't like to admit. Your motives are a little more selfish, a little more self-centered than you'd like to admit. And this drives a lot of your behavior. And you kind of know that's true, but you don't want to talk about it. When you want to present yourself, you want to present yourself as interested and caring for other people and interested in the world, et cetera. Right. You talk about it as being the elephant in the room is a social taboo, but the elephant in the brain is an introspective taboo. You don't like to admit it. Right. One of the things I found fascinating, because I know you've done work in the medical healthcare world, and you posit that people in developed world consume way too much medical care beyond what's useful to stay healthy. So it's not just about health, is it? There's other motives involved. Right. So the, it's not just a hypothesis. That is, we have a lot of data, uh, not just with correlation studies, but really randomized trials where we give some people more medicine than others, and we find they aren't healthier. And that's a big data question. Well, why? So that's where you need theory is to say, why do people consume so much medicine if it doesn't seem to be helping them much? And this is going to be surprising to many of our listeners to this fact, uh, but it's true. In randomized trials, people who get more medicine are not on average healthier. And it goes with a whole bunch of other puzzles about medicine, including the fact that we like to socialize it. We like to consume it communally. We are not very interested in other effects on health besides medicine, say nutrition, exercise, air quality. Um, we are very interested in sort of um, getting more medicine or at least as much as other people. So our medicine consumption is uh, influenced by the wealth of other people around us. There's a whole bunch of strange things that go along with medicine. And our story is that this is one of your hidden motives. So when you think about medicine, you say, why do I go to the doctor or the hospital? You say to yourself, well, I could get sick or I might be sick and these people could make me well. That's the story in your head. And we're saying that story is not fitting your behavior very well. So if we look at your and other people's behavior, we see that, for example, you get a lot more medicine than is useful. So what's going on? So we posit that you have a hidden motive about medicine. What you are using medicine for is to show you care about other people and let them show they care about you. It's like when you scrape your knee as a kid and your parent kisses your knee and kisses the boo-boo and makes you feel better. And medicine is kissing the boo-boo. Um, I love that. <laughs> and it's an important social function in the sense that we do need ways to tell who cares about us. And we want to show other people that we care about them. And medicine is one of the key ways we do that. It's just not so useful for getting healthy. That's, I love that. That's great. The kiss the boo-boo theory. Uh, you quote JP Morgan and he said, a man always has two reasons for doing anything, a good reason and the real reason. And you say our hidden agendas explain a surprising amount of our behavior, often a majority. That's fascinating. So when people look at other people, especially people they don't like, especially people they're rivalrous with, they're quite willing to posit hidden motives. People are relatively easily will attribute the opposing political party or uh, their brother-in-law that they resent or <laughs> et cetera with malicious or you know low selfish motives. And if those people deny it, they 
will, you know, be somewhat dismissive that, okay, maybe they're lying. Maybe they aren't even aware who is self-aware. But when you look at yourself and your own behavior, well, you're much less willing <laughs> to attribute your behavior to the sort of motives you are willing to attribute other people to. So, you know, the obvious point is you're really not that different from everybody else. Most of us aren't that different from everybody else. If other people tend to have low motives, they aren't that aware of. So do you. And it's not just that we deceive others. We're also deceiving ourselves. You, you get into that really deep. It's fascinating. Right. So, um, your conscious mind, uh, you know, is the thing that you're consulting and hearing all the time, telling you what you're doing and why, and, and what your reasons for, and what your plans are. And your conscious mind, you think of as the president or king of your mind, but it's more like the press secretary. Its job is not to be in charge and make decisions. Its job is to look at the decisions that were made and justify them. That's what the press secretary's job is. After the and fact. sometimes it's better if they don't know the real reasons, makes it all the easier for them to come up with good sounding reasons for what's being done. So that's what you are. You are the press secretary and you are constantly looking what you're doing and coming up with the best reasons you can to explain what you're doing. And that's why you don't know exactly what you're doing consciously, uh, although we can help you understand by helping you analyze your and others' behaviors to see the actual you know, patterns that make more sense and the better explanations. Great. And then you talk about signaling. The, the deeper logic of many of our strangest and most unique behaviors lie in the value of, uh, as signals. And the peacock, uh, we've had Rory Sutherland on, and he's written some books about this. And he talks about the, you know, the single man driving the Ferrari. If women were just interested in expensive vehicles, they'd go after truck drivers, but they rather chase Ferrari drivers. Um, signaling is right. big. Well, now if you owned your truck, that might be different. But if you're just employed by somebody else who owns the truck why that's a different matter so one of our biggest selfish reasons is we want to look good to the people around us so uh, we're a very social species we interact a lot and in a sense that the outside physical environment matters less for our success than the, the opinions of other people around us uh, about us so with everything we do we do it with an eye to how it will make us seem we are consciously aware of what we think the impression will be of everything we do. Um, and we choose to do things to give a good impression. Now, consider the medicine example. When you're trying to show that someone else that you care about them, that's a pretty laudable goal. You're not trying to show them that you're you know, stronger or smarter or something. You're trying to show you care. Even so, we're embarrassed about showing that motive. <laughs> We'd rather pretend that we're just focused on their health, say, or um, our own, rather than admit that we care about the impression we're giving. It, it doesn't look good to be too give too much attention to the impression you're giving. That seems self-centered, which it is. What do you think about Brian Kaplan's book, um, The Case Against Education, where he debates the signaling versus the human capital accumulation of an educational degree. Well, one of the chapters in our book is about education. We basically agree with Brian and summarize there. Now, um, there's 
almost everything we do has multiple functions. So that's a key thing to notice about human behavior. We only have a limited number of institutions and, and practices, and we have a lot of things we're trying to do with them. So almost everything has a lot of functions it's achieving at the same time. So with school, as Brian points out, uh, you know, we could be learning useful things, but that's actually not a very big part of it. <laughs> we can use school to show off uh, our conscientiousness and our conformity and our intelligence. Uh, and that's another thing we do for school. But there are other things we can do for school as well. <laughs> so, for example, obviously, governments like to use school to as propaganda. And many parts of society will want to take advantage of the ability to imprint young people with whatever propaganda they can get away with. Uh, we use school as a place to meet and socialize, clearly. Uh, and we sort people according to you know their social standing and, and let them meet there. And we even use school as a way to habituate people in the modern workplace practices. So uh, school accomplishes quite a lot of things. And somewhat the problem is trying to disentangle which of them matter more. But it seems relatively clear that the simple direct skills on jobs are not the big thing. <laughs> um, we can disagree about what the other big thing is, but that's clearly not it. We're not actually learning very useful things for the job at school, and we never did. You know, you talk about, I, I, I found the discussion about social norms, too, just fantastic can you tell the story if you can remember it of uh what how do you say it te ranja the the the, the maori villager if you remember that one no i'm not remembering that one at the moment he, he was the new zealand uh, maori that wandered up and down the coast of new zealand badgering fishermen oh well for... yes <laughs> so so there was a a norm of being generous to strangers and at doing you know what strangers ask and so a particular person was taking advantage of this generosity. Uh, he was going around and asking for a lot, and they all felt obligated to give what was asked uh, until the point where they thought he had asked too much. And then they did the ancient human thing of getting together and saying, hey, we got a problem here. What should we do about it? And I believe they just killed him, <laughs> which is a common solution to these sorts of things. So you have to beware of violating these norms of asking for too much. So there's a lot of norms that we have that we enforce with relatively low stakes because people go along with low stakes. And then it seems like they're not that important. And the way you find out how important they are is when you start to violate them more strongly. And then you'll see the guns, bigger guns that people will pull out to uh, deal with the situation. And this is an ex dramatic example of how we really care a lot about many of these norms, even if we pretend usually that it's not that big a deal. I mean, the example of standing in the, the movie line theater, uh, the line at the theater to get into the movie and, and somebody cuts in front of you, that uh, that's another great example. Well, you, you just feel angry and you feel like you should do something. I mean, I often feel like this, like on the road, somebody will, you know, do something on the road and make me mad. And I realize, you know, they, they they lost me a couple seconds, you know, and it, could it really be worth having some sort of outburst in order to uh, deal with the fact they cost you a couple of seconds, but you feel like you're a chump, a sucker, if you let people get away with these things and you feel this pretty strong need to do something. 
Robin, in the second part of the book, which I haven't got to yet, you, you talk about all those different issues like education. And, and I noticed that laughter is, is one of them. What do you say about laughter? If you could just summarize that for me. Laughter and having fun are these things that people don't realize that they don't know why they do. So we just have to ask, well, why was that funny? Or why did you laugh? And it turns out most of the time we laugh, it isn't about something funny. And we laugh more often when we're talking than when we're listening. And we've got a bunch of correlates of laughter that don't really make sense in terms of the usual theory we have that, you know, you laugh at funny things. So uh, our story about laughter, which we take from a standard literature, is that laughter is a way of checking that we're still playing. So humans play like other animals play. And when we're playing, we have a set of rules about play where we have to like take in our claws and not try to hurt people and sort of do stylized motions that were like real things, but take away the danger from them. But when we're playing, sometimes people do get hurt. And when you get hurt, we have to, to notice, hey, something, somebody has to say, hey, I'm hurt. You know, we need to get out of play mode here. We need to like switch or maybe a serious threat shows up. We need to get out of play mode. So we need a way to check, are we still playing or not? And so for humans, laughter is a we're still playing signal. Uh, that is you, you, you know, so a comedian might say something that would seem like the sort of thing that can get them canceled or fired or even killed. And we will laugh because we look around, and we go, nope, no danger here. That's not going to happen. We're still playing and we all feel good that we're still playing and not actually in any danger. Uh, and that's a way that we bond together. And we do a lot of covert signaling with laughter there's a lot of things that we can't say directly that we can say somewhat indirectly in part via laughter. Uh, that is, we we a lot of our play is social play where we pretend to violate norms. I might insult you, for example, uh, but not really mean to insult you or apparently not mean to insult you. And the way you show that it's just playful insulting and not real insulting is by laughing and playfully laughing, you know, throwing back a different insult. And as long as we're all still laughing, we're saying we're not really getting hurt here. We're just playing with these insults and, you know, it's all fine. That's fantastic. Well, I look forward to that. Um, Robin, this is flying by. I knew it would, but folks would like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Do check out our Patreon channel where you can subscribe and get our bonus content. You can do that at patreon.com slash TSOE. And that channel is sponsored by 90 Minds. More minds are better than one. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back with Robin D. Hansen on the Soul of Enterprise. And Robin, you left me with a hanger in the first segment, so I've got to come back to it. You talked right. about you asked some weird questions in on your exams. Give me, some, can you give share some examples? Well, one that just comes to mind is uh, jail is very expensive, and corporal punishment is much cheaper. So you might think we could make win-win deals by taking a person who's convicted and sentenced to five years of jail and saying, okay, you can take the five years of jail if you want, or we've got three weeks of corporal punishment here. And we set the you know amount of corporal punishment to be nearly as onerous and you know distasteful as the jail, but a bit less so that they'll take the option and save us a lot of money in jail. So is it cruel? To give people the option to have the corporal punishment instead of jail, because you might have said well, it was cruel because that's a mean thing to do to somebody, but jail is a mean thing to do to people. And the whole point, of course, of punishment is to do mean things to people. The whole point is to do something that they ahead of time would have disliked. Uh, and so we, you can ask, well, why not give them the option for corporal punishment instead of jail, or even say exile some instead of jail for five years, exile for 10. And that's also cheaper for us. Uh, why not offer cheaper punishments? People, th this is a sort of question ChatGPT doesn't answer very well. <laughs> and of course, it would be interesting too, if we could run those studies to see people who selected the corporal punishment, what percentage of them were recidivists versus those that went and, and did, the, did the time, right? Sure. If you were trying to prevent future crime, then we have lots of other ideas we could pursue. Uh, so that we we have a particular, say, criminal justice systems, and near it is a vast space of alternative systems that you know we could design that plausibly would have advantages. And so I enjoy asking people about these alternatives because, in some sense, people are just reluctant to consider alternatives very far away from the world they live in. Uh, this is a basic fact, even about college students who think of themselves as rebels and you know, uh, ready to be, you know, change the world. They don't really want to change fundamental parts of their world. <laughs> right. I, I want to change the, change, the, change the world to Marxism, but I'm not giving up my iPhone. <laughs> right. Or my Thanksgiving dinner or <laughs> the arrangement of furniture in my bedroom. <laughs> 
all kinds of stuff. Well, Robin, I'm going to turn your attention for the last few minutes that I have with you to a book that you wrote back in 2016 called The Age of M, Work, Love, and Life When the Robots Rule the World. And the first question I want to ask you just for our audience is define M for us. What is an M? So M is short for emulation, and it's about a brain emulation. And this is a way that we could make smart robots. So at the moment, the robots you've heard about, the artificial intelligences, these are computer programs and mechanical systems that have been designed by people trying their best to make a system that does what humans do. But the human brain is the thing that does what humans do, and it's very complicated. But if you could make an emulation of a human brain, why? It would do what humans do. So it's possible that we could scan particular human brains and see exactly which cells are where, connected to what and of which type. And then we have good enough computer models of how each brain cell works that we can put together a whole computer model of that particular person's brain. We aren't ready to do that now, and it may be a century, but at some point we should be able to do this. And if we can do this, then this is a way to make robots as smart as people. And they would plausibly take the jobs away from the ordinary human versions. So um, I did this book, The Age of M, and part of the plan here is to try to show you just how much you could say about an alternative future world. So many people say that it's just, you can't predict the future. It's just impossible. It's all too complicated, all too messy. So we might as well just forget about it or like enjoy science fiction stories as some sort of inspiration because it's it's just impossible. And so my effort here is to say, well, look, if you take particular technology assumptions and you say, assume the following technology shows up, it's quite possible to work through in great detail just exactly what would happen. We social scientists know quite a lot about the social world and how the world responds to technologies. And um, this is an example. So this, as you probably noticed, if you tried to read the book, it's chock full of detail, perhaps too full of detail. Many people might think- It's not romantic at all. It's just- no. <laughs> It's trying to convince you just how much detail it's possible to say about this world. <laughs> and it's a weird world. So I think, I mean, another basic lesson about the future is that if you just noticed how different we are from our ancestors, you should expect that the future would be pretty different from us uh, and in ways that you might not like. Because uh, I think a lot of the ways our world is, our distant ancestors would not have approved so much of. They might like our vending machines and comfortable feather beds, but maybe they don't like that we've given up on their patriotism and their religions and their loyalty to their families and you know, many things that they thought was very important, we no longer see as important. So that's what you should roughly expect of the future, but that's kind of abstract. So, but my book gives you a very concrete example of it. It says, okay, here in particular is how weird it could be. And here in particular are the many ways in which they might reject things you hold dear. And one of the, the two contrasting ideas in, in the book are that, that M M's will be poor but they are also M's are elite. Talk about those two things in contrast with each other. So through most of human history, most everyone lived at what we call subsistence level. That is, they didn't earn that much more than it took to barely survive. Most people were dirt poor and you know barely had enough food to eat. 
Uh, that's how most humans are. It's how pretty much most animals have been all through the history of biology. Okay. In the last few centuries, we're, we're this exceptional period where we are rich and we are not near the edge of survival. But uh, in this future world of M's, the prediction is because it's so easy to make these emulations in factories, the population of M's can grow much faster than the uh, economy can. And so we return to a world of subsistence income. Most emulations are nearing subsistence. Um, but they're in a different world than us. That is, they aren't, you know, in a hovel in the ground in a you know subsistence farm. They're in an advanced economy, so their jobs are more interesting, but still they need to work most of the time to be able to afford to exist. Um, and this new world can take any one human today, and once you make a brain emulation of them, it can make billions of copies of that one human. So all, you know, 8 billion of us, if the transition happens, we're all competing to be, you know, copied a lot in this world. And this world is not going to equally copy everyone from our world. Possibly most emulations are copies of the few hundred most appropriate productive emulations. And the rest of us are not, you know, copied very much. That is, we could pay for our own copies in retirement, but we, there's not much demand for us as workers. But these few hundred best of us, there's demand for millions and billions of copies of each one of those. And so their style and ability and, and capability are like our most elite people. So the typical emulation in terms of how impressive they are if you meet them and how how well organized they are and how sharp they are, et cetera, they're like our billionaires or Nobel Prize winners or Olympic gold medalists or heads of state. Most brain emulations are that good. So if you met one of them and had a conversation, you will be impressed by how elite they are in that sense. So compared to the typical human, they are very elite. Now, of course, compared to each other, they are ordinary. Well, we've only got about a, bit, a minute left in the in the uh, almost let's say eight years since you've written the book. Um, you said it, it's going to be a hundred years from now. Do you think that's accelerated based on what you've seen in the last eight years, or are you still nah? This is a hundred years away. Uh, I don't think we've seen that much progress along this line. We've had some progress, but roughly what you'd expect. The big thing that everybody's asking is, has AI progress sped up? And so, do I think? the non-brain emulation AI is much closer than I thought before. And so I am less convinced that we are near human-level intelligence, even though we've had some pretty impressive progress in the last few years. So I'm happy to promote people using these new machines and finding all the places they can go, and I don't want to regulate them, get in their way, but I still don't think they're about to take most human jobs in the next 10 years. Probably not even less next 20. So... We're still a long way off. And so the race between whether brain emulations will show up before human level, other kinds of AI, it's still an open question. All right. Well, great. We're up against our last break. want to remind folks that you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe. The website is The Soul of Enterprise. You can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Right now, we're going to take a break. But a reminder that this third break is sponsored by my employer, Sage. told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. 
Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Robin Hansen. And, and Robin, Mark Andreessen just wrote a piece on his blog, Why AI Will Save the World. And he pointed out that every new technology has sparked a moral panic. In fact, there's a great website, pessimistarchive.org, where you go, and it's really a great website because, I mean, radio is going to, you know, destroy everything and just all sorts of stuff. But um, what did you think of the Andreessen piece? Well, I basically agree with his overall stance, but. This is a complicated topic on which there are many different positions and many different issues that people could have. So as we discussed a bit before, I actually think most people don't like the idea of big change. So, I mean, most people, even from a century or two centuries ago, if they saw our world, they might not approve so much of it. I think we approve of our world, but that's because we've changed ourselves as the world's changed along. So I don't want to be too dismissive of the other concerns, but I want to oppose them as opposed to dismiss them. So, you know, Andreessen can be seen as just saying, look, there's just aren't any problems here. Don't worry about it. And other people I hear saying, no, no, there really are problems. You're, you seem to be not talking about them. And I'm willing to talk about the potential problems you might have. But I think in the end, I'm going to agree with Mark that on the net, we should just swallow our pride or suck out up and accept the risk of certain kinds of problems for all the benefits we're going to get. So the question is, what are the things that people fear or don't like? And, you know, how far can we go to try to discuss that with them and to help them see the trade-offs? I mean, one you did a great podcast <laughs> on, it came out on May 12th with Reason, and uh, you were on there with another guest, uh, Jan Talon. And he was kind of more on the pessimist side. And, and we've heard this from other people too, that, you know, there's a one, 1% chance that, you know, this is an existential threat. 
I've heard as high as 50%. Russ Roberts had a guest on his show talking about a 50% chance of, of human extermination uh, because of this technology. And what's your take on that? Is it is it just overwrought? So what's happening is people are constructing worst case scenarios. And they're saying, look, you can't disprove the worst case scenarios. So they're just going to focus on them and stay worried about them. And so then the question is, you know, what can we say about these worst case scenarios? So one kind of thing you could say is, well, maybe there's worse things that'll happen later, but is this the right time to be doing something about them? That is, you know, in the year 1000, if you had been able to anticipate the industrial revolution coming, could you have assured people that would never be any world wars or there would never be any global warming or things like that? It wouldn't have made sense to try to say, no, it'll all be fine. There'll never be any problems. What would have made more sense is to say, this is just way too early to be trying to deal with whatever problems may be coming. Uh, you know, we we almost always deal with concrete versions of problems in order to think, to come up with concrete solutions. We we don't really do a very good job in thinking about problems in the abstract long before we see concrete versions of things. So uh, I might say, look, eventually we're going to have AI and it's eventually going to be very powerful. And eventually that will change the balance of power in the world. And that can cause, you know, various people to do bad things, perhaps. Um, it might cause world war, you know, be part of world wars, and it might be ways in which some of our descendants have conflicts with others and some went out over those. All those things could happen. I don't want to tell you a guarantee that no bad things can ever happen. Uh, my first you know, message would be nothing's happening right now. There's no sudden thing happening right now that we need to deal with right now. We're going to see these things grow gradually, and then we're going to have lots of warning for as they get better. And so uh, think about perhaps if you like the sort of things you might worry about later, but then, you know, try to track whatever you're worried about, but there's nothing necessarily we have to do right now. But like, like I said, initially, people are suddenly able to see farther in their mind, at least this recent events have made them be able to imagine where these things could go. And suddenly they're worried about that. So some people say, well, just because progress has been gradual in the past, it could all of a sudden speed up. <laughs> and all of a sudden, in a very short time, there could be enormous change. And of course, in principle, that's always been true. But honestly, it's just really unlikely uh, to worry about that. But for many people, I think these sort of issues are not the main thing. <laughs> I think the main issue for most people is just the otherness of AI. Honestly, they just think in terms of, well, there's us and them, and those thems, they're going to be growing, and those thems will eventually be powerful and more capable than us, and those thems could them do anything they wanted to us, and who knows how bad it could be. That's really the fundamental argument here. I think the arguments about rates of change and that, that those are things that people, you know, talk about in order to, you know, really make an exact, a strongest version of their case they can, but for most people I talk to, it's really fundamentally about the us versus them thing. And I think I try to push back directly on that and say, look, the AIs are your descendants, literally. And they aren't here yet. And we're going to be making them as we go along. But when they finally get here, it'll be because we made them and they will make them in our image to some degree, and they will be our descendants. And if you think about your descendants, even without AI, you should realize 
you were always expecting your descendants to displace you. <laughs> you were always expecting some potential conflicts with them. And you were always expecting that their priorities might differ from yours. And you've been accepting that about the usual descendants you're imagining. But somehow when they're metal instead of carbon and you know hard instead of squishy, now you really, the hairs on your back of your neck go up and you go, well, those descendants, ew. <laughs> and that's the fundamental issue here. And so I don't know how I can persuade someone not to go ew, but I really want to focus your attention on that's really the thing going on here. It's just the us versus them, ew, that's driving this. And I want to say, but look, they aren't, you know, imagine you have several children and one of them you think is kind of ugly. Well, this is maybe your ugly child, but it's still your child. And ask yourself, do you really want to send this child off into the woods and, and reject them from your family because you think they're kind of ugly? Or maybe they've got some virtues you should look for and try your best to raise them to be as pretty as you can. When you see folks like Sam Altman, you know, the president of OpenAI, uh, go before Congress and say, regulate us. Do, do you think Baptist bootleggers or is this? Sure, of course. Like, so that the, was, you know, so as an economist, we have a lot of stories about how regulation happens and, and the patterns of regulation in the world and how they don't go very well usually, but they're often in the interest of, you know, big player insiders to promote regulation because that usually helps them. And here's a case where you've got big player insiders asking for regulation. So it fits the story, you know, to a T. And then I hear other people saying, oh, but in this case, look, I look into his eyes and he looks sincere. And how can you be so mean as to miss, you know, to, to suspect the motives of such a nice person? And I go, that's not how we do it everywhere else. Come on. <laughs> you know, I mean, these are, I mean, from the same sort of people who like, wouldn't at all think that John D. Rockefeller could have had a, a kind heart or good motives because they like, they just hate him for being rich, right? I mean, I think that goes too far the other way. Uh, I don't think you should look into Sam Altman's eyes and decide that you think he's a, he really means it because um, you like his eyes. You should be looking at the general economic pattern here. Yeah, in general, you should be suspicious of industries that you know demand regulation. Uh, especially that they will find it easier to handle than their competitors. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't other problems. It just means, you know, you should look at independent arguments for those. Uh, we've only got 30 minutes, Robin, but I'm just curious, or 30 seconds, sorry. I'm just curious, do you support a basic income guarantee? Not really. <laughs> uh, so I think if you're worried about you or your descendants being poor, you should set up poverty insurance. So there's the basic question, should we collectivize poverty insurance or not? Uh, I think the degree to which we are inclined to collectivize poverty insurance is basically and somewhat based on the threats that, you know, poor people might do stuff to us. And the other may be based on the threats that we couldn't resist helping them any later anyway out of the goodness of our heart. So we might as well set it up and, and anticipate that effect. And that may be true, but uh, I'm not eager to set up a very generous one. The standard argument is, is that usually we are trying to give to some kinds of people who especially need help and sort of a generic money to everybody, no matter what your condition is, is less conditional than we want. And why be so unconditional? Why not continue to be conditional and say, yeah, there's certain kind of people we want to help. And we'll ask, see if you're the kind of person before we decide to help you. 
Well, Robin, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Ed, what do we have next week? Ron, next week, we're going to talk about Vivek Ranswamy's new book, Capitalist Punishment. Excellent ESG. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage. Building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's noon Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com.